Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 6. We're carrying on here with our discussion about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, obviously, this will make much more sense if you have listened to the episode on Matthew 5 first. There we gave a, a fair bit of background. Let me just say here by way of reminder that Jesus is describing the righteousness of the kingdom over and against the rejected form of righteousness practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. The righteousness of the kingdom is infinitely better. It is internal as opposed to external. It is a matter of the heart as opposed to being about mere performance. It intends to please God as opposed to impressing men. And in fact, it represents the true meaning and intention of the Old Testament. We'll pick up the sermon at verse 1 of chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Let's just pause there. In this section, Jesus is talking about the right way of being religious. There is, of course, a wrong way of being religious, the way of the Pharisees. And there is a right way, the way of the kingdom. Now, by the way, I, I think we need to be careful how we talk nowadays about religion. It is popular in our day and age to say that Religion is bad. Well-meaning Christians will often say, I'm not religious, I am in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, for starters, that kind of language is incomprehensible to our non-Christian neighbors. To state the obvious, Christianity is a religion. It's the largest religion in the world. So what does that even mean to say, I'm not religious, I'm just in a relationship with Jesus? Because to be in a relationship with Jesus is to be, in some sense, a Christian. And as I said, and as your neighbors know, Christianity is a religion. So that's, that's confusing. And we should stop using that kind of terminology. It's not helping, and it isn't how the Bible approaches the problem. The Bible understands that there is bad religion, but the Bible understands that there is good religion too. James, the brother of Jesus, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So a religion that is about holiness and mercy is a good religion. And I think that we would all agree that our world needs more of that type of religion and less of the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. That's how James talked, and more importantly and more immediately, that's how Jesus talks in this sermon. Jesus is talking here about the right way of being religious, and he is addressing the three common categories of religious piety, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. He has something to say about all three. He begins by talking about almsgiving in verses 2 to 4. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, at first glance, this counsel appears to conflict a little bit with what Jesus just said back in Matthew 5, 16. There, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, is our faith to be conducted in private or in public? And before whose eyes are we doing all these things? As I said, there appears to be a bit of a conflict here, but... Upon closer inspection, I don't think that there is. John Stott clarifies helpfully here. He says, Our good works must be public so that our light shines. Our religious devotions must be secret lest we boast about them. Closed quote. I think that's exactly right. Our works are public, but our piety is private. That's an important distinction. When it comes to giving, Jesus is saying that it should be done in such a way that nobody actually knows who the big givers in the church are. Many churches use sealed envelopes for this very purpose. Nowadays, when many people give online, I suppose it's even easier. The point is, we should never allow giving to be done in such a way that the poor are despised and the rich praised. Only God should know who gives what and probably the church bookkeeper too, but it should be done for God's approval only. If you pursue the praise of men with your gift, then you will receive no further praise and reward from God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here, Jesus is saying that prayer should be offered to God, not to other people. We don't pray to impress others. We pray in order to commune with God. Now, I don't think that Jesus is here outlawing corporate prayer. I think he's just saying that the bulk of our prayer life should be in private and unseen. And the reason we pray ought to be to know God and to speak to him, not to be known by others and to be praised by them. Again, this is all about the motivations of the heart, why we're doing the things that we do. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is, of course, one of the versions of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus probably taught this prayer on many different occasions. Uh, we have a version of it, for example, from a different setting in Luke 11, 1-4. 
The slight variations in the manuscript evidence here probably reflect the fact that this part of the Sermon on the Mount was well-known, well-loved, and oft used, as indeed it should be. The Lord's Prayer is not intended to be used as a sort of magic incantation. Rather, it is intended as a general form and outline. Martin Luther wrote to his barber, actually, and told him that he wasn't merely to recite the words of the Lord's Prayer. Rather, quoting here, rather do I want your heart to be stirred and guided concerning the thoughts which ought to be comprehended in the Lord's Prayer. Luther urged all his people to use the Lord's Prayer and even went so far as to say, I am convinced that when a Christian rightly prays the Lord's Prayer at any time or uses any portion of it as he may desire, his praying is more than adequate, closed quote. I'd be more than happy to second that endorsement. Now, I should probably say a quick word here concerning verse 13, given the controversy around the Roman Catholic Church's decision under Pope Francis to alter those words. Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, Pope Francis has gone on the record saying that he doesn't think that can be the right reading because a father wouldn't do that. A father wouldn't lead his child into a tempting situation in order to see how he would respond. The problem with that kind of logic and kind of argumentation, however, is that it goes against the Bible. Matthew 4 verse 1 says this, listen, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Bible clearly does say that actually God sometimes does lead us into situations wherein we shall be tempted. It says that happened with respect to Jesus. Now, James, the brother of the Lord, clarifies that this doesn't mean that God tempts us. God doesn't tempt us, but he does sometimes put us in situations where we will be tempted. God's desire in all those situations is that, of course, we will do as Jesus does. Resist the temptation. Our faith will grow and be shown. The devil's mouth will be shut and God will be glorified. That's his intention. Of course, the devil has other intentions. But the point is, the wording of the Lord's prayer, as we find it here in Matthew 6, 13, says nothing other than what Matthew clearly says in Matthew 4, verse 1. God does sometimes lead us into situations wherein our faith will be tested, wherein we will be tempted. That's that's not contrary to the Bible. That's, in fact, perfectly in line with the rule of Scripture, with what we see else. Where So I don't think that change is helpful, and I'm very nervous about arguing from our human experiences back to God, as if God is somehow obligated to do only that which human fathers do. Let's be very thankful that God doesn't do a great deal of what fathers do, and that God does a great many things that earthly fathers can't do. So let's leave it as it's written and as we find it in Holy Scripture. Now, I should also make mention of the fact that Matthew does not record here the ending that so many of us are familiar with, although it does appear in some Bibles as a text note, that line, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the manuscript variations here are likely due to the fact that this teaching was given on numerous occasions, likely each time using slightly different words. And the memory of some of those deviations was deeply impressed upon the hearts and minds of people in the early church. Verse 14, carrying on the theme of forgiving others, says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The idea here seems to be that you can't receive from God if you are holding on to offenses from others. You have to let go of offense in order to receive mercy and grace from God. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So having talked about giving and praying, Jesus now talks about fasting, which again was the third traditional act of religious piety. He doesn't say, don't fast. Only, you know, that was an Old Testament thing. Only, you know, we're not going to do that. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, when you fast, no one else should know that you are doing it. Don't tell people that you're doing it. Now, again, we don't want to absolutize these. Uh, We don't want to absolutize what Jesus says here about fasting any more than we want to absolutize what Jesus said about giving a, a few moments ago. As I said, in a church, almost certainly the bookkeeper is going to have to know who's giving what for tax purposes and and for some other administrative purposes. That's not the point. The point is we're not doing it to be seen and approved by others. So likewise here, I imagine if you're fasting for a couple of days, it would be impolite and unloving for you not to tell your husband or wife, right? Dinner plans need to account for how many people are going to be eating at the table. That's, that's fine. That doesn't diminish or obscure the point here. The point is that you aren't supposed to advertise your religious piety. Proper piety is between you and the Lord alone. That's the point. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, ultimately, it is God's approval and God's reward that rightly religious people are most interested in. Now, we should be careful to state the obvious here. It is clearly not wrong to be motivated partially by the prospect of eternal reward. Jesus is telling us to think in those terms, and you should never try to be holier than Jesus. Jesus cared about the Father's well done, and you can and you should, too. When I was a child, there was an expression that I would hear from time to time from well-meaning believers. They would warn folks about being so heavenly-minded as to be no earthly good. And I suppose there are people who need that warning. I haven't met too many of them, but I'm, I'm sure they exist. I have, however, met a lot of people who are so earthly-minded as to be no heavenly good. And that is the concern being addressed here. It's good to think a little bit about what life will be like in heaven and about what matters in heaven. In fact, thinking about that will help you live better and more rightly religious 
here on earth. That's what Jesus is saying here, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. If you are looking at the wrong things and lusting after the wrong things, your whole life will be affected. Therefore, Jesus is saying, you need to look for and long for the kingdom of God. Where the eye goes, the whole body follows. The whole life follows. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If your eye is on money, Jesus is saying, and you are lusting after money, then money is your God, and your God will lead you to your death. So choose your God carefully. That's very good advice. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We see here that anxiety in poverty can be just as dangerous as pride in prosperity. Both Attitudes can lead us away from a faithful reliance upon the Lord. Therefore, it is better to trust in God, to be busy as the birds, and to rejoice in whatever God sees fit to supply. He sees you, he knows you, and he cares. Therefore, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Charles Spurgeon says here, God who gives you heaven, will not deny you your bread on the road thither. Now, I'm not sure that I've ever said the word thither before, but I like where Spurgeon is going. God has already given us Christ and heaven and each other and eternity. What more does he have to do before we trust him? Therefore, be anxious for nothing. The Lord is with us and for us today. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. 
If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 